Welcome to Fox Trotting in a Foxhole, number 004, season one. Woo! Before I get too far, we want to thank the folks at www.purpleplanet.com for the wonderful theme song. We're hoping to solicit all the, some of that wonderful talent out that we know out there to give us a new theme song that will be a little bit more in tune with what we're doing as opposed to taking some of that royalty-free love. Yeah, wow. So just coming to air here um, a little bit later than usual. Some technical difficulties as we're getting our um, ship <laughs> together. And I, that's with a P, not a T. Um, yeah, it's uh, also watching that annoying Stephen A. joke on the woke leader in sports going off on another one of his stupid rants, which he's had several in the last couple of days. Yeah, tell me that guy never gets... That guy never suppresses the level of annoying. But hey, you know, somehow ESPN believes that uh, he's worth the money that they're paying him. Talk about wanting to help out the causes of you know, people of color. Take his, uh, you know, fire him and donate that to uh, training some... Uh, young talent of color we'd be far better off than having listened to that fool but that's enough of talking trash about Stephen a clown well where are we at here uh fresh off of a holiday weekend as america celebrated its 244th birthday yeah you know we got to give some props there we made it to another one Happy birthday, America. Well, what what went down? It was a weird fourth. You know, obviously, um, with the pandemic, the cultural revolution, you know, those two major events in American history that's ongoing and, you know, it's very dynamic. It made for a most unusual fourth. Right, there was no uh, small town celebrations, no large gatherings in our cities, you know, um, no sports. Usually on the 4th of July, you have lots of baseball. We're getting ready for training camp to start. All of these things that we've become accustomed to weren't going on. It was really weird. You know, that I spent... Uh, my day on America's 244th birthday, I was watching soccer all day, which is, you know, as, as I've pointed out in previous episodes, I'm a big fan of the beautiful game, something that occurred to me later in life. But in a normal world, we wouldn't have EPL on us uh, on the 4th of July. The season would be over with, and we'd be watching FIFA competitions or something to that. We'd be watching Wimbledon. And it was just really surreal that I'm sitting here watching soccer, no baseball, um, as I said before, the, no celebrations to attend. Uh, perhaps the big highlight would have been just watching the next day, actually, watching some of the uh, drone footage of the illegal firework displays that were going on across the country especially in Los Angeles, you know, given you know, the beautiful backdrop with the smog and the sunset led for some wonderful visuals. 
I highly suggest, you know, checking out some of the 4K footage that's on YouTube. Uh, wonderful scene. And that's another thing that we did not get to have is most, most cities and small towns were not able to have their, their, their usual 4th of July fireworks celebrations, which is usually a wonderful way to wrap up a day of festivities. So it really led to just a very surreal day. All right, then. That's enough about America's birthday. You know, we'll worry about our next holiday coming up here at uh, the end of summer, Labor Day, which hopefully will be the start of football. But that's not looking so good. But we'll get into that in a little bit. So our first topic we want to touch on is something we had spoke about last week as far as our opening goes. And that would be about the state of Mississippi and its, and its decision to change their flag, take the Confederate signage off the flag, which I was really surprised by. As I was joking with somebody uh, yesterday, and we, were talking, we were doing some preparation for the show, Old Dixie really took a severe hit last week. Uh, Confederate statues were removed peacefully or by force. Uh, there's the ongoing talk that seems to be gaining momentum that they're taking you know, the names of the Confederate generals off of our military installations. The Dixie Chicks rebranded as simply the Chicks. But on top of all that, I think the biggest shocker and this uh, wave of change that is not only hitting the country, but obviously taking deep root in the, in the South, as we talked last week about NASCAR and its flag controversy with Bubba Wallace and the Confederate flag, but the state of Mississippi, and that, you know, removing the Confederate signage from its state flag, which was a symbol of the state's rebel heritage going back to 1894. And I think what's so significant about this is that even though there have been previous attempts to remove the signage from the flag, such as uh, which was about four or five years ago when Dylan Roof uh, killed nine parishioners in a South Carolina church, a lot of uh, sentiment at that time was to do away with uh, you know what a lot of people perceive as a very hateful symbol. And that gives these racist and would-be domestic terrorists a symbol to rally around. And that didn't really happen. So what was the driving factor behind this change? And once again, the world of sports. And in this particular context, collegiate sports being the driving factor to push this change. And it's, I thought it was really interesting. It, it kind of starts with... The Southeastern Conference Commissioner, the SEC, better known to most of us, Greg Snarky, proclaiming that there would be that all championship events would be banned in the state if the flag didn't change, and so that was kind of the first. That was kind of the first shot. Then the second move, which is pretty major, was uh, uh, Kylan Hill, you know, the star running back for Mississippi State, threatening to leave the school if the change wasn't made. Uh, going as far as to saying that every time on campus, seeing that flag made him sick. And it's just that he really was not going to play another down at that fine institution unless this change was to be made. And then lastly, which is uh, another 
thing that took me by a, I won't say surprise, but I found it to be highly significant. Two newcomers, although they might be newcomers, but very prominent members of the college coaching fraternity and Lane Kiffin of Old Miss and Mike Leach of MSU advocating strongly behind the scenes and really pushing hard for it. So what does that say that you have a commissioner, uh, two coaches that are new, and both of them will be starting their first years at these institutions in, in 2020 if we have a season, and a student athlete being the catalyst for change? What it tells you is that the power of sport, especially down in the South, money talks. And from Kiffin and Leach's perspective, that you can't compete with the Alabamas, Georgias, and LSUs in the world if the prime black talent doesn't want to go to your school because they see it having all of this racist imagery and symbols and the whatnot. And conversely, that trickles down to so many other things. As we all know, what a multi-million, if not billion-dollar business that college football and basketball, and even in the South, some degree, baseball, that in those states, the sport carries a lot of weight in the dollars and it translates into so many things that, that happen there as far as it being a vertically integrated enterprise. Um, and ultimately, um, you know, I mean, at one point, uh, Governor Tate Reeves, he proclaimed that if the bill wasn't passed in the legislator, legislature, excuse me, early in the morning, we're still getting our uh, words together. But, you know, he said at first it wasn't going to happen. But, you know, ultimately he saw the momentum that this was getting and, he said that if the uh, it passed the state legislator, it would he'd send the bill into law, and that's what ultimately happened last week. And it's a testament to sport and how it can never be underestimated as being an active agent for social change. Alrighty, we're gonna take a break here for a second and regroup, but uh, we've got some more coming up as far as social change goes. Okay, we are back. Now, in our next segment, we're going to piggyback on what we were just talking about. And for me, this takes a very personal note. I mentioned in previous episodes how I am a lifetime supporter of the Washington Football Club, better known as the Redskins to most of us who have followed this team all of our lives and will continue to do so, I hope. Um, unless you've been hiding under a rock, you know that the Redskins' nickname has been under siege for quite some time. And this week, in the wave of protest and the calls for change in the wake of the George Floyd tragedy, it seems that this has finally come to a crescendo, shall we say. The Washington name change. Well, except for me, it's really personal. I've been a fan 
of this team since 1969 when Vince Lombardi coached there for one year before his untimely death the next year due to cancer. But uh, when Lombardi took over the team, is like when I became a fan, and that sort of ushered in, well, at that time, was about a decade, decade and a half, maybe even two decades of some of the finest football in that franchise's history that ultimately led to three Super Bowl championships and lots of wonderful memories. Um, a little backstory on this. Uh, the, the franchise was established in 1932 as the Boston Braves. They became the Redskins a year later when the team moved from Braves Park to Fenway Park, which I've always found is this incredible irony with all of this, given some of the things that you have been hearing about racist behavior in the stands at Fenway. Uh, just you know, look up Tory Hunter, and that'll give you a hint or a hint of of this. Or listen to any Boston Celtic African American player, and they'll tell you lots of stories of. Just fans really being nasty to African Americans and people of color over the years of the Boston Garden. So, I mean, yeah, you know, Boston and you know, in this story, of course, there's a connection. You know, don't take offense, Boston, because there's lots of wonderful things about that city as well. And you know, it's a city of champions. <laughs> okay. So anyway, team moves to to Washington in 1937. After their legendary owner and team founder, George Preston Marshall, as I affectionately call GPM, moved the team to D.C. after getting angry at the fans of Boston and moving the team to Washington in 1937 and starting what has been an 83-year love affair of, of some highs and some definite lows. But nonetheless, we are where we are. How, how did this controversy come about in terms of Washington? Because it does have this really, uh, as far as NFL history and the NFL entering its 101st year, that the Redskins do have a very, shall we say, odious legacy that goes beyond the nickname. Uh, last team to integrate, and the reason that being prior to this 1960s, Washington was the team of the South. And GPM, accordingly, the man of his times, sought to accommodate his fan base, which in the era of Jim Crow was Washington State's white. And that meant that the stands were segregated and the team had no blacks. The, team's, the team didn't have an African-American player until 1962. And that's when they drafted Ernie Davis, who they ultimately traded to get Bobby Mitchell, one of the greatest Redskins of all time, who just had his number retired. Uh, the late Bobby Mitchell, I would say, who passed away earlier this year. But that, you know, was brought about by pressure from Robert F. Kennedy and uh, Stuart Udall, basically saying, you're not going to play in D.C. Stadium, later known as RFK, unless you finally integrate. Now, GPM passed on, and the team was owned by Edward Bennett Williams, and then one of my all-time heroes, Jack Kent Cook, who also owned the Lakers. Great irony there, as he had wonderful success with both teams. It makes me smile whenever I hear his name. But in, in, in those eras, there have had many African-American stars, coaches, 
not head coaches, mind you, but coaches in the front office, whether it was Bobby Mitchell, Doug Williams currently, uh, wonderful uh, relations with the community. Uh, first black or African-American starting, quarter, starting quarterback to win a Super Bowl, Doug Williams. Last three draft picks have been, well, not, I shouldn't say their last three, but in the last decade, they have drafted three African-American quarterbacks in the first round. And so to hear that clown Stephen A. Smith talk about Washington has done nothing for race relations is absolutely ludicrous. And it's why someone should slap that clown upside his face until he's black and blue. Not advocating violence, but the guy is really annoying because he sits there and talks all this nonsense and people eat it up like it's the gospel when here I am, some amateur hack, and I can talk circles around the guy when it comes to actual truths. But we, we'll leave that argument for some other time. Maybe someday I'll get to the, the, debate the clown. With that said, when I was growing up, and, like, and as I've said, I've been a fan since 69, this wasn't really an issue. And I'm not saying that is, wow, hey, on my day, this wasn't really a problem. It wasn't. And that it's not a right or wrong thing. It didn't really start to surface until the 80s, in terms of it being national. I know that there were people who took offense to it, but it never got any traction from anyone. I know that. Being on the ground, and not from being from D.C., but always being a fan and always having my ear to, to the ground, this wasn't an issue. Uh, when the Redskins played the Broncos in San Diego, which I was down there, one of the wonderful weeks of my life, I might add, this is when you started seeing it get traction, and this was mainly among the academic crowd. Uh, a lot of, a lot of, you know, the the growth of ethnic studies, you know, outgrowing from uh, the wave of change that happened in the 1960s, where you get Pan African studies, Chicano studies, Native American studies. The ethnic studies movement is where you sort of see this movement to calling. The sports names like Redskins into question. And once again, I'm not going to make a value judgment either way on that because as we've seen with the case of the Redskins, there have been plenty of studies done by one done by current owner, Daniel Snyder, that found many Native Americans to be in favor of the nickname and never finding it offensive. But yet you'll have on the other side of the spectrum tribes like the Oneida and Wisconsin who have been vehemently opposed to this. And uh, you're not, I mean, it's going to go both ways. And unfortunately, I do feel that if you can find a segment of a particular people that are offensive, you need to listen. Where I take problems with this is when I see FedEx, Pepsi, Nike, especially Nike, trying to be bullies and force their way into it. I mean, Nike, hello, home of you know human rights violations from here to Bangkok. I mean, quick sidebar here. Uh, I remember when I was going to the University of Oregon here in Eugene, students basically having a protest similar to what you're seeing now and and telling the university, having a sit-in at the university complaining about their commitment to Nike. And so what does Phil Knight, the chairman of Nike, 
uh, the founder and, you know, basically the end-all, be-all when it comes to that corporation. What did he do? He pulled this, he pulled this money and divested from the university in a little hissy fit, which, you, you know, few people seem to forget about that when we look at how beautiful he's made that campus. Long story short... I guess it was about a year and a half later. I'd have to go look it up. But when the kids were out of town, the university sort of apologized, kissed the ring, and next thing you know, Phil's back on campus. And the history will tell you that in that time since this little spat, he's completely remade the Eugene campus. I mean, most some of the most amazing, beautiful facilities on any college campus in this country. I was just by the new Hayward Field the other day, and it's absolutely gorgeous. Uh, the renovations to Otson, the new gym, Matthew Knight Rabrina, named after his son, his deceased son. It replaced the, the venerable Mac Court, the law school, lots of things. But it's like, give me a break. You're going to pull the Redskins uh, apparel off of Nike's site when... All the human rights violations with sweatshops. I don't care if you're buddies with Kaepernick. It does not cover egregious violations that most people who are not willing to look at the great things he's done for this university and others. And they should have no skin in the game, no pun intended, but it just makes me throw up. And same with FedEx, which FedEx doesn't necessarily have a blue ribbon history on race relations. There are plenty of lawsuits that employees have, have put up against FedEx in terms of dealing with racist behavior. So I just have, have, have a very hard time looking at corporate pressure you know, on, on Dan Snyder. And let's face it, under Mr. Snyder's watch, the Redskins have not excelled. Uh, he's not a um, man that makes wise choices. And so that, you know, to wrap this thing up, and I've said this many times in, in the past, in the last 10 years, maybe longer, but I felt that this could have been avoided. You rebrand the team as Washington FC. You go the soccer or football proper route. Works very well there. Keep the colors. And when you, when you just say the Washington Football Club, it allows us fans a little room to still refer to them as the Redskins. It appeases the woke and, and, the, and the liberal media that wants to, that's afraid of alienating folks. They get what they want, but there's a little room for everybody to get a win-win. I think a complete, you know, calling them the Red Tails or the Warriors or whatever, it's going to cause a break. It's not going to be like when in the same city, the Bullets became the Wizards. I, this is far, far different. Uh, there's so much tradition wrapped up into this. And I feel that rebranding as the Washington Football Club, to me, is the way to go. Uh, it probably won't go that way. I really hope that if whatever happens, he makes a wise choice, even though his track record doesn't suggest that he will. And the final point I will make on this, you have to wonder how long is it going to be before the Chiefs, Seminoles, Blackhawks, Braves, are going to go under the same scrutiny. For somehow, this Redskin name seems to be more offensive, and the the, the academic um, police, they've, they've come up with some stories, just like the Native American blankets, which 
kind of happened, but never to the extent that people proclaim. And you can look that up. Right. Isn't it? Oklahoma is a Choctaw word for red people. So should Oklahoma change its name? I mean, red people, red skin. Yeah, you get what I'm saying? And once again, I do feel that if it, some people, regardless of their educational background, but if they find it offensive, it's something we should listen to. And it's and when it's so simple to have nicknames that aren't offensive, but I'm looking at you too, Fighting Irish. But where does it all end? Because if you're going to attack sports, then in art, should we start looking at Tarantino movies where they drop the N-bomb so many times? Um, rap where it's misogynistic. It's very, a lot of embalms dropped there. And just to be able to say, well, well, because they're black, they can do it. That's not going to cut it. Like If we're going to get rid of racist imagery in sports, then we need to look at it in popular culture as well. And I know, I know that's going to like bum some people out, but you can't have it both ways. Saying the Redskins is offensive and it's got to go. Well, then I don't want to see a Tarantino movie where Predominantly, the dialogue is dropping in bombs. I, I find that to be repulsive, and why should I have to subject be subjected to that? And then say, "Oh, okay," because a certain group finds this name offensive. And meanwhile, many people within that group don't find it that way, but to appease that group, I have no problems with listening to these ideas. And I just think, you know, it's it's something that should be, can be avoided because we should not be naming teams after after race, people, ethnic groups, religions. I mean, come on, would you would, would the Jonestown Jews be acceptable or the Newark Negroes or the Mash or the Memphis Mexicans or right <laughs> or the Joplin Japs? None of that would would fly. So I'm I'm okay with that, even though I I've I've really questioned this idea about how offensive the Redskins are and I just kinda laid that out. Anyway it's a personal issue for me, but life goes on. And in this wave of change, these are some of the things that we may have to like cope with and embrace moving forward. All right, we'll be back with another segment coming up here. Okay, welcome back. So for our next segment, which we like to call the hot take of the day and something you probably should know or care about, or perhaps not, um, let me start with uh, a quick look at what I'll call Filmgate Redo. What is that? That would be the NFL's recent slap on the hand, well, depending on how you look at it, of everyone's favorite cheaters, the New England Patriots. Yes, that franchise we've come to love, not really, and actually hate. But, uh, you know, in, in, in the last 20 years, without a, without a doubt, most successful professional team in American sports. And let's face it, uh, when we look at uh, the great teams of all time, they're certainly in the conversation. Uh, but as we know, in the same 20-year period, the Patriots at times have not been so good. They've been rather naughty. And we remember uh, Spygate 1, which was the team getting caught 
filming teams doing their their walkthroughs and preparation and actually burning the film. And that sort of was what led this whole notion of the Patriots being known as cheaters to come into formation. Um, yeah, that, that was a really ugly situation. Then we have the flight gate where Tom Brady was accused of deflating the balls, which obviously gave him and his teammates an unfair advantage, especially in inclement weather conditions. We all get that. Um, we have their owner getting a little touchy-feely. Just the Patriots have had some tawdry things. And so when this thing came up last week where they were stripped of a third-round draft pick in next year's draft, fined a million dollars for improperly filming Cincinnati's sideline last December. This is a Cincinnati Bengals team that ended up with the number one pick in this year's draft. Why? Because they sucked. So that brings me to, is this a big deal? Are you kidding me? Yeah, the Bengals, it's just they had the first pick, whatever, they won in 15, something like that. I mean, horrible. I mean, what kind of advantage was Belichick or known to, affectionately known to many as Belichick? What kind of competitive advantage was he really getting from filming Cincinnati? I mean, is this just, you know fighting them and reprimanding them a way of appeasing the other owners and powers that be that hate the Patriots and are jealous of their success because it really isn't that big of a deal. But guess what? Hey, you're doing it again. But it's the, it was the Bengals and they stunk. I was still trying to figure out why this was ever a deal. Yeah, all right. Okay, the next thing on my list of things you should know, care, or not care about would be the legendary Leo Messi. Yeah, that Leo Messi. Well, word is that he's possibly leaving FC Barcelona at the end of the 2021 season. According to BN Sports, yes, they're so reputable. Hey, they partially owe my PSG, but that's another story. And other outlets have, have, have alluded that this is a possibility since his contract is up, and at 34, it might be time for Messi to seek a new adventure before his playing days come to an end. Uh, the rumors are is that Messi is really not happy with the current state of the story club. Messi, who joined the club at age 13 and has been part of the top flight squad since 2004, his departure would create major shockwaves in, in, in the football proper world. Let's not even kid ourselves. Um, speculation is ramp, running rampant as to where he would land. There's all sorts of potential destinations, whether it's, whether it's young boys back in Latin America, but because of his visibility and the instability there, it's highly unlikely. There's a possibility he would reunite with Neymar and, and Kylian Mbappe at my PSG, which would drive me absolutely mad. Yeah, okay, <laughs> you know, let's get a little excited about that. But I really can't see uh, UEFA ever letting that happen. Uh, FFP would surely come into play. There's a possibility he'd go to Real Madrid. Maybe even come to MLS and give the domestic game here a boost. Regardless of whatever happens with Leo, we will be keeping an eye on it because I think that uh, guy's been phenomenal. And as we have saw with Salatan, who's... 
even older. These guys have still got some ga- some wonderful years left. And we've seen with Tom Brady, some of the, you know, right. It's not a stretch for Messi to still play at a high level for another four or five years. And so we will be keeping an eye and we will surely be revisiting this. Uh, and, our ne- and our last thing in this is, and we talked about this a little bit last week, but you really got to give, you know, a huge shout out to Maya Moore. I mean, seriously, I mean, talk about a rock star. Um, gee, right? We talked about this last week, and Maya Moore, the Connecticut son, who walked away from the WNBA in 2019 to become an advocate for social justice causes, uh, right? What a sacrifice she made, but the work that she is doing away from the court is to is seriously to be lauded. And we give her a, the, you know, the highest shout-out that we can give on Fox Trotting in a Foxhole. And if you don't know... She became an advocate to, to fight for causes such as one of Jonathan Irons, a Missouri, a Missouri man who was sentenced to 50 years on an assault and burglary charge that many believe he didn't commit. Last week, thanks to the efforts of Moore and others, Irons was set free after serving 22 years of his 50-year sentence. Now, Moore is a two-time NCAA champion, four-time WNBA champion, and a person who's also won on the international level, uh, right? And not only Irons, but also being a strong advocate to right the wrongs in the cases of Alton Sterling and Philandro Castile. Morris walking the walk and doing the finger wag at pundits like Laura Ingram who think players should shut up and dribble. And as I say here, you get our highest shout out Keep on doing the good work, and perhaps after you have helped many others, we'll get to see you back on the court again. Fantastic stuff. Oh, yeah. When we also want to discuss this one. The NFL's plans to play the Black Anthem before Week 1 games. For me, that's one of those, yeah, okay moments. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm not really sure what to think about this. I guess on the surface, it's kind of noble, but really, I mean, is playing this anthem going to compel employers to hand out jobs that would ultimately end our national black employment problem? Hell no. Is it going to lead to more black coaches, GMs, or I dare say, even African Americans getting a piece of ownership? Probably not. Um, Would it make up for what happened to Colin Kaepernick, regardless of how you feel about how that went down. And lastly, and you know, once again, I'm thinking about Stephen A. Clown going off on his rants and Jerry Jones and others. Are you serious? When you look at the NFL, and maybe this is coming from a cynical point of view, but having created more African-American millionaires than most industries in America, maybe outside of entertainment, is this gesture even necessary? I think that the NFL, and it does have some things to work on from an image perspective, especially with most of its labor pool, 70, 75% being African-American or people of color. Yeah, it's not perfect, but at the same time, 
it works to people that they can attain the wealth that can actually help communities and have a platform to further the cause to promote the social justice causes that really need their attention and need to stay at the forefront of our conscience. All right. How about let's dig into questions from the intelligence and technically because we're not really live yet. We have to wonder where they're coming from, but yet we are still good. We are getting questions. And so this is from Mike P in Oceanside. He wants to know, Ken, what do you think of the NBA playoff format regarding the teams at the bottom? Well, simply, I like it. I, I, I really, because it has some potential for lots of intrigue and drama, something that's clearly been lacking from our palates in the last four or five months. Yeah, right. <laughs> but um, having six teams in the West, uh, you know, as my prime example, fight it out for the possibility of a playing game you know, makes for wonderful TV, great storylines, and you're going to see some incredible basketball. So I really, at this point, um, two snaps and a twist as far as that goes. After a long period of not having drama and things to help focus, and I'm sorry for all you folks that feel that this is going to be a distraction. We need a distraction. We don't need to have all this drama and strife in our lives 24-7 between the pandemic and this cultural revolution that's taking place. We do need our games back. You may not agree with that, but oh well. Everybody has an opinion, and we're entitled to it. <laughs> okay, next question. Um from, from from Anna PK, she wants to know, how do I feel about L.A. losing out on this year's All-Star game that was slated to be the this year in Dodger Stadium? Well, I think it sucks for L.A. and the Dodger organization as a whole to have the Midsummer Classic postponed. You know, as they've spent a nice chunk of change renovating Chavez Ravine in preparation of this, you know, first time it would be there since 1980. Um, it's a temporary frown, but the, the long and short of it is, as long as MLB makes good on its promise to have the 2020, the 2022 All-Star Game, sorry for that, but yes, the 2022 All-Star Game there, um, you know, it'll be cool. Business as usual will be a slight delay. Give them more time to make the Dodger, experience, Dodger Stadium experience even more cool for fans that will be attending it. And the 2020 commemorative hat that I have, maybe it becomes more classic that some sucker will pay me some bucks down the road if I keep it in pristine condition. Okay, folks, we will be back with our next segment in a few minutes. All righty, we are back. As we start winding down to the home stretch of this episode, 004, a fox trotting in a foxhole. Yeah. Well, where are we now with our ongoing discussion with COVID-19 and how it is rapidly changing sports as we've come to know them? Um, let's talk first about the NBA. We talked earlier with the question just in the last segment. Now let's look at the bubble, you know, which 
to give you guys a sense of, of the bubble, and if you don't know that already, that it's going to be held at Walt Disney World. The bubble is basically in an area that's larger than the city and county of San Francisco. As we all know, that San Francisco is a city and a county, and uh, not that big, but big enough if you've, if you've been there and adventured around. So, what has to happen for this actually to work? Well, not to um, give Stephen A. Clown a a any love, as I, you know, obviously been be knocking him off the walls, I always do. But he really brought up a great point. And last week, when he talked about these guys and their baby mamas and their ladies and their wives and, you know, whatnot. They're gonna to have to behave themselves for this to work. It, it's simple as that. Uh, there, there are depth, there are there are certain protocols that are in place, and if they're not adhered to, we're gonna have problems. Uh, what we just found out. This is just but before I went to the air, I just saw that yesterday there was what 70, 7,300 new infections and three hundred and eighty new hospitalizations in Florida. So, given those kind of numbers, the guys are just going to have to behave themselves and really just commit themselves to activities within the bubble, safe distancing, masks, hand, you know, all the sanitation things, and even you know, their travel protocols, which are going to be pretty strict as well, as I just saw, I think it was yesterday, that they have separate uh, rules for folks who are traveling by either by charter or on their own via plane and or by a car if they want to drive there, that all these things are going to have to be adhered to for these things to work. And, and uh, you know, it's funny that not everybody's, you know, really down with this. Um, Damien Lillard, you know, Diamond Dame, he doesn't believe the players are, go are going to adhere to the restrictions of the bubble. Um there's been talk that the players aren't happy with a 113-page manual for dealing with the, uh, these COVID restrictions, even though the renowned Dr. Fauci thinks it's a brilliant plan. Um, so what are our big takeaways right now? We know that as prior to this, and the numbers might have changed, I haven't had a chance to look them up, but I know that when I was sketching out my outline, that 25 players so far have tested positive for COVID-19. We do know that Lakers assistant coach Lionel Hollins will not be traveling to the bubble because he is a high-risk candidate given his age and pre-existing health conditions. Uh, in the past week, Milwaukee, New Jersey, Denver, Los Angeles Clippers, and Miami Heat have shut down their practice facilities as a, as a precautionary move after a positive test. And these are definitely ominous signs as we head into the bubble. Uh, what are the ramifications of the season being scuttled if these numbers start to like skyrocket, which is a strict, is a definite possibility, given the numbers I just laid out? Well, it's gonna happen. I think that the both sides do not want to go into a prolonged labor negotiation. They have labor peace. But obviously, if the season doesn't go on, this will give the owners the right to tear up the current CBA, and it can get pretty acrimonious. And I think it would be a detriment to the players. Yes, there have been players who have talked about 
wanting to forego this to, for, for activist causes or because they simply have fears that this COVID spread is so out of control that it's a risk. But it's a bigger risk to the younger players who haven't made their money. They may lose out. And that's why I believe that bar something really catastrophic happening, we're going to have basketball here in, what is it, three weeks now, I believe? Or three weeks and, and some change. Uh, let's look at what's going on beyond the NBA in, in our sports world when it comes to COVID-19. Major League Baseball. Uh, this is a very fluid situation as reports are coming in. The ML play, MLB players are very skeptical that a season can be executed given the health situation with COVID-19 spiking in Florida, California, and Texas. Quote from one Nats player, um, Sean Doolittle, he gets at the heart of what many players and commentators are thinking right now. And he, and he says that sports are like the reward of a functional society. And us bringing it back, though we've taken none of the steps to flatten the curve, is absolutely ridiculous. Got a point. So what do we know? In the, in the past week, four Braves tested positive, including star first baseman Freddie Freeman, who says he's just really, you know, he, he tested positive on Monday, and then the next day, you know, had symptoms, and he's having a rough go at it from what I uh, hear. We have Mike Trout, who's considering sitting out. You know, Mike Trout, one of the big stars, one of the biggest stars of the game in the, in the current game. David Price, who just joined the Los Angeles Dodgers, is going to set the 2020 season out in the interest of being with his family at a cost of $12 million to him. So, obviously, there are bigger things than money. And obviously, uh, Felix Hernandez is also going to be sitting out the restart due to COVID concerns. Elsewhere... Jimmy Johnson tested positive for the virus last week and missed this weekend's Brickyard 500. Multiple St. Louis Blues have apparently tested positive for COVID. Gilbert Burns had to withdraw from UFC 251 due to not feeling well. Liz Cambage of the WNBA's Las Vegas Aces opt is opting out of the 2020 season as she's got a precaution as well due to pre-existing health concerns that put her at a great risk for contracting COVID-19. We've heard that the NHL has announced that their bubble will be in two cities, I believe Toronto and Edmonton, and that their season will commence later this month. And then in MLS, which the MLS Cup is going to start tomorrow, according to this taping, we already have some really bad news as far as that goes. First, with Nashville having five positive tests, and their match with Chicago has already been postponed. We just found out yesterday that with all the positive tests that FC Dallas has encountered in the past two weeks, they are now pulling out of the MLS's back tournament, and they're not they have no participation. So that's a major setback for Commissioner Garber and the rest of the league. But that said, the league is forging on and. All these stories are going to be fluid as our responsibility. We will be looking at this week weekly, giving you a look at COVID and how it's changing the face of sports. And right now, I got to tell you, it's really scary. I mean, when you talk about 
two of our major sports being held in Florida. And, you know, obviously baseball and playing in the home stadiums when two teams there. Yeah, 7,400 new infections. And we're hoping these players are going to somehow follow the protocols and stay confined within the bubble. Yeah, I don't think so. But hey, we'll be following here on Fox Trading in a Foxhole, and we'll have fresh perspectives every week. You know, and the thing about it is, is that I get the frustrating for part for it for me and others who've been watching this. You know, it's like there's no light at the end of the tunnel for this regarding the slow and the nationwide spike of this disease. You know, can, can, and you have to ask yourself, can we really have a return to sports or have people on, on, on campus? You know, you know, are all these best plans that, are, that have been drawn up for not? I mean, I look at Europe, especially with its soccer leagues, uh, the Bundesliga, the EPL, La Liga, Serie A, the Portuguese Premier League, the Russian League. All of these leagues were able to restart in late May or June, they're up and running. You're not hearing of any problems. So you've got to ask yourself, what the hell are we doing wrong here? Why is this such a you-know-what show? Just saying. I mean, surely there's something we, we should be learning from what they're doing over there that would help make the return to sports and other things possible. With that said, we'll just make ourselves a little nice segue to... Speaking of COVID nineteen and the the quest for social justice, what is it? What is the view looking like on campus? You know, as we know, everywhere you look, the NCAA as we know it is under fire, as is everything else in our society. And with change being, you know, the order of the day, we need to figure out what's going on with our with our college sports, which you know is dear to many out there in our viewership or listenership, I should say. And uh, just, you know, it, it's it, communities, you know, live and die by what happens with collegiate sports. You know, with that said, so let's, let, let's take a look around the world of college on campus. Oklahoma, University of Oklahoma in Norman. 14 players last week tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, they're... In state rival Oklahoma State, as we've talked about in previous episodes, with the ongoing uh, controversy with Mike Gundy. Well, this past week, Oklahoma State believes that Mike Gundy needs to work on his rapport with players of color, but they feel he's not a racist, at least by the school's investigating body. They didn't think he was a racist, even though he caused a big stir by wearing the the OAN Network t-shirt, which caused his players to complain and suggest that maybe he should go because he's a racist. Well, the school's investigating body didn't see it that way. And however, he did agree to take a $1 million pay cut after a review into his conduct. So, hey... <laughs> But, I don't know about you, but you know, taking a million dollar pay cut—that's that's pretty significant. By it, but once again, he didn't. You know, the school didn't find him to be racist. Just feels that he needs to work on his rapport with his players. Boy, that's really some expensive sensitivity training, now, isn't it? Uh, 
in, in neighboring Kansas. They suspended workouts last week after they were multiple cases of positive tests within its programs last week. Um, we have the, the Associated Press is reporting that testing athletes for COVID-19 is putting an extreme strain on budgets of these athletic departments already feeling compelled to watch expenditures uh, you know, brought about by the losses incurred from the shutdowns of spring sports last year. And a, also a story we talked about here last week, Kansas State athletes have backed out of their proposed boycott after the university agrees to take action following a student's incendiary tweet. Excuse me. Yes, there was uh, some talk last week that Kansas State athletes were going to not play until action was taken after a student had said some inappropriate things on Twitter that the athletes took offense to. Power of the power of sport once again taking place. The university has taken action, and now Kansas State athletes are going to move forward with their preparations for the 2020 and 2021 fall, spring, winter season. So we'll be keeping an eye on that. Uh, to the south, in Texas, DeMar Overshone. He plans to sit out of workouts until the University of Texas meets his demands of making the university more inclusive for African-American students. Um, background on this story is that tensions with African-American student-athletes have been escalating over the past couple of years with, you know, said players taking serious offense to UT traditions like the fight song The Eyes of Texas, which has connections to the blackface menstrual shows of the 19th and 20th century that have been deemed highly offensive to many. Buildings that are named after people who have segregationist ties and just, you know, an overall call to have more diverse statues on campus that further reflect the, the diverse student body populations there. Yeah, that's kind of a real thorny one, wouldn't you say, in terms of, you know, anything about Texas and its history and not saying that these athletes don't have a point, but it, I think this is something that needs to be discussed as opposed to putting your foot down and saying you're not going to play, you're not going to work out. Um, last time I checked, a lot of these donors put a lot of money and make the right the, the money these donors have put on the table make the student body student athletic the student athletic experience what it is there, and without their support. I don't know if Texas has the visibility that it has. I think you need to work within these things. You know, that may not be a popular opinion with a lot of folks, but you might be asking a bit much there. I, I feel that this is something you want to discuss. Uh, we have to look at the numbers, but uh, you don't necessarily want to alienate these donors and have them pull their money from the table. Work within the system as opposed to potentially alienating folks. That would be my way of going about it. And lastly, as far as looking on campus, we also have former cornerback Ryan Lacey and his family receiving death threats after insinuating that defensive coordinator Morgan Scallery called him the N-word at a practice in 2013. 
Oh, wow, that was like seven years ago. But since he's still on the staff, it's fairly relevant. After going back and forth, and there's university committees and investigating boards looking into it, it seems that they're they're backing the coach. But from what I understand, that he no longer has the coach in waiting title that was anointed to him because there were talk that Charlie Whittingham is going to move on at some point. Uh, it's really unfortunate that if this is true and that people are, are hurling death threats, I mean, yeah, Utah's got its own, you know, wonderful history when it comes to people of color, good and bad, I guess, when you look at some of the things that, you know, the missionary work that, that the Latter-day Saints do. But uh, I just know from, you know, my days at Cal State Northridge and we used to play some in Utah, you know what they're, yeah, what is it? they call themselves Dixies or something like that. Yeah, yeah, there's some, Utah's got some uh, interesting, um, I don't know, what's the term I would use for that? It's, yeah, it's, what did, what did my friends say? It's not necessarily a popular place for the brothers, but at the same time that, you know, whether it's the Jazz or the Utes or Utah State, you you do have a presence of African American athletes that have been embraced, but not necessarily always warmly. And what you're seeing here, obviously, with uh, what's happening with Ryan Lacey and the threats that him and his family have received, which is very deplorable. Hopefully, this story has a, a a good resolution. We'll update it in the episodes to come as far as what's going down with that. Alrighty. So let's get to our parting shots. And first off, we will start with our annual, the Turd McCory Award. Yes, the Turd McCory Award, our weekly look at something that really annoys us. As the person who this name this award is named after truly does, but we won't get into that because there's all kinds of libel things that we can be subjected to. Number one, because we're going to have, this is going out to multiple, we're going to give a multiple Turd McCrory Award this week. One would be the NWSL Challenge Cup and its broadcast partner, CBS. I brought this up a bit last week, but it's like, are you serious? For July 4th, they had two matches, and I couldn't find them. I'm sure had I done some digging, but the point is you have a broadcast partner. We want to definitely showcase the ladies, obviously given what they've done on an international level, which actually surpasses the international men's team. But yet, every time I want to watch a match, other than the opening Saturday when their game was on the CBS network, I'm having to always look. And in fact, okay, on Saturday, the match that was in the morning, they did show in the afternoon, but it was delayed. So I already knew the, the, the final score. It's just like, come on, you, come on, you all, get serious. Especially given this was the first professional sports league to start play again in the United States. There was no competition, really. It's not really going up against European soccer. And even if it is, so what? What are you? What else are you showing, CBS? It, even on your cable sports network, I shouldn't have to like think. Okay, I gotta go find it online and get that all hooked up. 
I mean, on the one hand, there there are, you know, it's good that, that, that you can find it somewhere, but given that there was no competition, I just find it to be, you know, rather disappointing. And the second uh, award goes to Asante Samuel, calling out Daryl Green and questioning his Hall of Fame credentials. What, the same Asante Samuel who cost the Patriots a perfect 19-0 season because he had hands of stone at the most inopportune time? Calling out Daryl Green, a Hall of Famer, four-time Pro Bowler, eight-time, I mean, all-pro, eight times to the Pro Bowl, somebody who defenses never threw against, person who, you know, single-handedly broke the back of the mighty Bears with his incredible punt return in that epic playoff game in 87, which catapulted us to a Super Bowl win in 88. Are you kidding me, Asante? You know, clearly, in, in this softest, you know, chiffon era you played in, you don't realize what a stud Daryl was. Guy played 19, 20 seasons at a high level. It's nothing but a pillar to the community. How dare you call my man Daryl Green out? Okay, so how about for the liar side of the, of the sports life? On July 4th, which one of the things I didn't talk about in terms of it being surreal, but apparently the the annual hot dog uh, eating challenge at Nathan's went off and Joey Chestnut wins again, woofing 75 hot dogs. And I got to tell you, it does not just give you all sorts of indigestion thinking about why he ate 75 hot dogs in 10 minutes, I think it was. Yeah, you know, anyhow... Guy is good at what he does. I kind of wonder, you know, what his trips to the bathroom are like, you know, in the weeks after these competitions and just, you know, just can't feel, I mean, you know, I eat a hot dog or two and it's like a lead sled in there, you know. I just can't imagine putting down 75. But hey, somehow he's conditioned himself for that. So, hey. Alrighty, folks, this has been really fun. Uh, in the weeks to come, we're going to get better at this. We're going to have multiple episodes that feature culture and local events. We're only getting started here. It's going to be a great summer into the fall. Hopefully things get better on the COVID front. Hopefully some of our social justice concerns get resolved and we get on to living the way we should. And until then, peace out, keep it real, and keep it tight. Fox trotting in a foxhole.